so we talked for 10 years and we've been together for 11. So um, a total of 21. So Ooh. 21 years. Oh my God. And Hello, my name is Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there and the people that they used to know. So we talk a lot on this show about new, fresh, exciting love, or if I'm more honest, we talk about lust. We talk a lot about lust, but we don't often talk all that much about that wonderful, long-term, settled-in, relaxed kind of love. You know, the kind where you can be cranky with one another and know that the other person isn't going to get offended and the type of love where you know each other so well that you can finish off each other's sentences. That was supposed to be sentences, but there was no one here to finish the line off for me. Hmm. Anyway, all of that is to say that this week on the show, I am joined by Charles and Martha from the Full Circle podcast. And they joined me to talk about the venture in in Philadelphia. But along the way, I got to witness firsthand their wonderful love. Ugh, that sounds a bit gross. I didn't mean it to sound gross. Sorry. So in this episode, we jump straight into their meeting story. And then from there, we weave a path through their exploring one another and exploring the scene together. And then we find out how the pandemic had a really significant but wonderful impact on them. Right. Shall we get into it? Start at the venture end. Do we start where we met? Where, I mean, if we're if we're if we're focused on the venture end, I guess we could start there. Oh, is that where you met? Our meeting story is an interesting story, and the place where we met mm-hmm. is actually mm-hmm. a space that doesn't exist anymore. I didn't even think about you that. You know, you didn't. <laughs> but it's not a queer space. It is not a queer space. <laughs> but it the wasn't vent, the venture not end. A queer space. Well, it, but it led us to other queer spaces. So we met <laughs> in a. <laughs> I worked at the University of Pennsylvania. My office was in a high rise and at the foot of the building was a row of uh, shops and stores and restaurants. And the corner became, and I want to say 2001, so I took the job in February, like by April or May probably, became uh, this wood oven pizza restaurant that had a little bar. You know, the bar was not the focus. It had patio seating mm-hmm. and restaurant seating and all of that. But it had a little bar. The bar was not their focus. <laughs> their focus. <laughs> but it was a perfect place to meet friends for beers after work. And the the owner was just delightful. She was a Sicilian woman from Sicily uh, who really kind of opened, you know, a very European feeling, very Italian feeling uh, restaurant. Anyway, Charles and I were both early regulars, you know, stopping off for a pint and we started talking 
just about life. And, you know, we conversed for 10 years. Yeah. Just as friends. Um, I was married through through that entire time uh, and taking classes at Penn and I would go in between work and class and Charles was teaching dance about a block away and, right, yeah. you know, he would, he would stop in after he was done teaching. And right, because the bar was the midway point between... Uh, work and the trolley to go home. Right. So, you know, we had this long conversation and that's all it was. You know, it was, it was we fascinated each other. We laughed, we talked, we, you know, knew about one another's lives just as, as you know, bar patrons. And then mm-hmm. uh, my, my marriage came to an end. And uh, as I started dating again, I was bitterly complaining because, you know, I was like, well, women aren't working out so well. I had two wives. That ended spectacularly. I, I was trying to date men. That wasn't going great. And so, you know. men suck. Men Sorry. suck. And I'll so we were it. sitting in the, you know, in the bar and I was lamenting this. And I said, you know, I went online and I met a couple of, I thought, nice guys. And they were like. Psychotic and, you know, they, they, it's like a shopping list these days, you know, what they do want, what they don't want. Do you fit this criteria? I was apparently too old to, I was to a lot of things. So as I'm telling him this, Charles said, hold on, are you ever going to ask me out? Because I think I'm awesome. So Right. I, and I went, you, you want to go out? And he said, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, I do. And I went, oh, let's let's go out and uh yeah and then we had our first date right after that it, charles is the same age as my ex-sister-in-law and when i was dating my first wife she was 10 <laughs> and i was 20 so charles she and charles were friends they had gone to college together yeah we and were in the so same class in college yeah i just kind of looked at him like he was a kid because she, you know, like she stayed in my mind as a kid. So even though they were both 37 or 36 at the time, I, that was just where he was compartmentalized or something. But no, of course I thought you were cute. But I just didn't think of you that way because you were a kid. Um, and, and so that started our relationship. So we talked for 10 years and we've been together for 11 So um, a total of 21. So Ooh. 21 years. Oh, my God. And... Thank you for doing the maths yeah, for me. But so Charles. Yes. So it sounds so it sounds from Martha's um recounting of the story that just hadn't considered you as dating material. Had you been holding out a flame for those ten years? <laughs> Had you? Well, I mean, she was married, so there was no point in even, you know, going down that road. Question still stands. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it wasn't a flirty thing. No, no, it was just a conversational thing. I mean, it wasn't not flirty, but it wasn't like actively flirty. Okay, I'll take that. But interestingly, so it changed ownership, the bar, and the new owners had decided to bring in a drag show. Mm. And we met those folks. We, we were one of the very few people in attendance. And, you know, we met those drag queens. 
And we went back to the bar that was kind of their home base, which is a bar called Bob and Barbara's on South Street. It's still there. So I, I started to meet more of the drag community because, you know, as a result of where we met. And then I, I do have a, I don't, I don't want to do all the talking, but I have a great story that led me to the Venture Inn. Because we, we used to call it the Denture Inn. Oh, right. That is not a lie. It was like the old man bar on Kamak Street. That's what we thought it was. It was the same when I was younger and coming up, going right. through the bars. It was like, you know, it was a place to go where if you wanted to get away from your friends because they weren't going to go to the venture. You could just go there, yeah. Anyway, I had gone on one of these dates before Charles and I got together. And uh, Guy is still a friend, but... We, had, we were on a date and we were at Tavern on Kamak, which is right up the street from the Venture Inn. On Kamak Street, which is this lovely little side street right in the neighborhood in Philadelphia. <laughs> so it's a piano bar. Right next to where the Venture was, actually. Well, yeah, right down the street. I right said down that. the street. Down yeah. the street. It's yeah. a few doors down. So we were on a date in the piano bar and I excused myself at that point to the men's room. And came back and said, wow, cruisy bathroom. Because it's all this sort of mirror-like tile and all these open urinals. That's the room. And I'm like, huh. And Matt, for whatever reason, Matthew said, you're trying to tell me you never had sex in a bathroom? I said, a public bathroom? I, no, I have not. I said, the closest I ever came was when I was a teenager. Um... As soon as I had a driver's license, my cousin, who was gay, and I started going down to the gay bars in Atlantic City, which is a little, about an hour from here, instead of going toward Philadelphia, which is about mm -hmm. 20 minutes from here. And I said there was this little bar on New York Avenue, because that's where all the gay bars were, and I can't remember what it was called, but I had a huge crush on the bartender. So if I'm 17, he's about 38. And at one point, there was this little bathroom that was literally a toilet and a sink behind a door, and you would get in line and, you know, to use it, and the door locked. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in line to use the bathroom, and the bartender was coming out of the bathroom. And I went in, and he pushed me back in and locked the door, and we made out. That's all we did. We made out. Maybe we felt each other up. I don't know. But, you know, he had a good idea that I was probably not of age. And that was, that was all that happened. And I said, so that's the closest I think I've ever come. And he said, cute story. And I said, I don't know where, whatever happened to that bartender. But my God, when I tell you, I thought he was the most beautiful man God ever put on the planet. And he said, why would you remember the name of somebody from you know, 40 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever it was at that point, 30? And I said, I, I'm just telling you, like, I love this. So anyway, he said, cute. And he calls the bartender and he goes, Sonny, could you get us another round? And I went, no shit. That was the bartender's name. And I tilted my glasses and I realized we were 30 years later, so he's in his late 60s. And I said, and that is him. Wow. And so Matthew said, get the fuck out of here. And he goes, Sonny, did you ever work in Atlantic City? He said, of course I did. He goes, I, you know, I used to work at the Rendezvous. I still have the, my white satin jacket. I said, that was the bar. <gasps> it was the Rendezvous wow. Inn. And I said, and you 
molested me in the bathroom. <laughs> and, he, and he looked at me and then he squinted and he said, I probably did. <laughs> and so I would go to tavern pretty regularly when I knew that Sonny was working just to hang out and talk and reminisce and because he was a sweetheart. So one day I walked into tavern and I found out he had been fired. And they said, but fear not because he's right down the street at the venture and you can go say hi. He's working down there. And so I did and there he was behind the bar and I started to meet a lot of folks that I knew who had been fired by other bars. You know, the, the, the folks who were older, uh, Sandy Beach was one of them. Sandy mm -hmm. Beach was a drag queen and bartender in Atlantic City back in the day. And then, you know, so Sandy's behind the bar. And then Jeffrey, who was in the kitchen, and I had known him years ago, and Joe Black, right, who used to work at Tavern, is now working at The Venture. And so I found out that the common thread was the manager, his name is Henry Britton, He's still a friend of ours. He runs a completely different bar now. Somehow he's still a friend of Somehow ours. Somehow he's still a friend. <laughs> what an awful person. But anyway, <laughs> I found out that Henry, you know, Henry, who's probably closer to your age yeah. or somewhere between the two of us, but Henry would hire our elders as they were cast off at other bars. He would hire them. And so he had sort of built this really lovely cast of characters, you know, out of deep respect and, and deep respect for our shared history. And so we started going there all the time. I mean, we, you know, once we were together, we, we started going to the venture. Hmm. So, so usually on this show, I ask questions about the first time that someone went to a space and how they found out about it and yada, yada, yada. But knowing that the two of you went there individually and didn't go there together for the first time. I'm kind of more interested in finding out about Charles and Martha, the couple. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, what was going on for the two of you at that time? Like what was happening in your relationship? A lot of sex. <laughs> a lot of not, sex. Not, not there though, not at the Venture Inn. No. No. No, no, no. Okay. Wait, no. Yeah, no. 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 Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> to stop it. No. Because, you know, we spent a lot of time there. Um, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time sitting and talking. Um, well, right, and exploring places together that, yeah. you know, we knew separately. Um, and, you know, because we found out how many people we knew in common, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that, you know, because Charles, Charles was out uh, and in the scene in Philadelphia uh, from college. Yeah, I was 18 mm -hmm. when I came out. Right. So he knew a lot of the folks that, you know, I knew to see, but, you know, he had either gone to college with them and was in the Temple Lambda Association with them. Or Which was the LGBTQ, like, student alliance. Yeah. Okay. So I, when we would go out, we spent a lot of time sort of introducing one another to the, the spaces that we enjoyed um, and, mm. the, and the people we enjoyed because, you know, our friends kind of commingled pretty quickly. And that's the thing about the venture because we both had our separate... Uh, limited experiences there, right? Getting to explore the vibe together was mm. cool, 
and learning about the vibe. And it's a shame because from the point where we started regularly going there to when they close, it was like really short. And it's mm -hmm. like, we could have been enjoying that space a so much longer. more over the years mm -hmm. if we hadn't was gone. Was it a year, maybe a year and a half? Yeah. Something like that. So what's it like then? Because this has never happened to me. What's it like going from being friends to not being friends? And is there any weirdness in that? None. No, not really. None. Mm -mm. Um, what's it like? What is it like, Charles? <laughs> it's a roller coaster. Well, we're both a lot. <laughs> we're both a lot. Both of us? I'm kidding. Yeah, we are a lot. Um, <laughs> I, you know, but it's what we had learned, again, over time was we really enjoyed conversation with one another. Right. We always found things to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. We always sort of picked up things and turned them over and discussed you know, whatever was happening. Um, and we still do that. So, you know, we, but that's the kind of friends we were. We had never gone anywhere together other than the bar. Right. When we would see each other. We never planned that. We didn't have mm -hmm. one another's telephone numbers. You know, it was just, he'd happen in there when I was there or I'd happen in there when he was I'll there. I'll see you and, if I see you. Yeah. So, yeah. I remember the first converse, well, this wasn't the first conversation we had, but it was the first conversation that I actively remember from the days before we were dating. I had said, I wish I could go back in a time machine and go to Studio 54. And you said something along the lines of, yeah, but you couldn't go outside right. because of the climate with uh, surrounding gay people in the world at large. And that's something that I knew, but I didn't really think think about the reality of it. Right. And that was just a, a moment where I was like, huh, that's a yeah. good point. I mean, I You're remember, <laughs> like I said, or, you know, early on, my cousin and I would go to Atlantic City. And that was, I, I don't know, I guess more chill or something. But I remember the first time we went to Woody's because I think somebody he was he had just started dating was working there. I think that's what led us there. But the first Which time... Which is in Philadelphia, not in... In Philadelphia. So this is early 1980s, maybe 1983. Mm -hmm. We, you know, Philadelphia at the time, like the sidewalks rolled up at five o'clock. You know, when, when business people left Center City, it was deserted. There was not a lot of nightlife. There were not, you know, it's a very vibrant place now, but it was not then. And it was really easy to get parking because everybody was gone. Right. <laughs> but I mean, I remember dudes going by in a pickup truck throwing a beer can at us as we're just trying to walk to oh, Woody's. I mean, it was, wow. yeah. Um, and that was the thing. Now, you you know, queer people are out on the street making out and other things. But at the time, that was not the case. We, we were not spilling out on the sidewalk. Other things? Tell me more about these other things. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know. I, we, the, Philadelphia has alleys and, and such, and, you know, more than once we've encountered uh, an encounter. Yeah. And you've had to tell me, stop staring. Right, stop staring. <laughs> and, and, and commentary is not necessary. We can just keep walking. Well, right. I'm like, you know, if you're out in public, I, the assumption that you're going to get looked at is there one would think. So. Right. I, but, I, you know, there was, I remember especially the couple that was kind of ducked 
sort of behind a car where, but in the lot where we were parked, sort of. That's what I was thinking about. But, right, but very open. And, you know, one dude was on his knees and the other one was being serviced. And the dude on his knees kind of paused for a second and went right back to what he was doing. Uh, we were standing there getting out, like getting into or out of our car. Like, yeah, he was like, yeah, I'm just going to, he looked up at us and we weren't cops. So he was like, okay, well, I'm going to finish. And we were like, okay. It would be rude not to. I mean, that's, exactly. That's it's impolite, fair. probably. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, we wouldn't want him to stop on our account anyway. Exactly. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it, it's all fine. But you never know. What, you know, but it was not like that then. If it was, you were really hidden because. It was, it was a scarier time, I think. Yeah. And the city was just a very different place. Mm-hmm. Um, and little, going to gay bars was considered like, you know, seedier because, right. you know, it was... More of them didn't have windows. Mm. More of them, you know, you got inside to safety. Mm. That was a common theme. But, but even into the 80s, it wasn't a street fest and there weren't windows. But wait, how did we get here? We're, we were talking about transitioning from being friends to being a couple oh he that he said he would have liked to have gone to studio 54 and i said yeah but oh yes yeah 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 that we we've evolved through our conversations as a couple sure Mm -hmm. you know and but do you remember the mental shift from going like okay we're friends okay now we're not friends it wasn't really that drastic of a shift to me, anyway. No, it oh, wasn't okay. to me either. There was, I mean. But, but what about all the sex? That was great. Yeah. Because there was just but a comfort sh- level between us. Like I said. So that wasn't weird? No. No. Okay. Mm-mm. No, it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. Because I, you know, I, I, I had either a three date rule or a four date oh, rule. Oh, right. <laughs> as I was dating. Because I'm like, I'm not in it to hook up and I'm a little older. And I'm, I was actually just, you know, mm-hmm. kind of trying to at least find someone I had something in common with. And I mm-hmm. turned to Charles and I said, was it a three date rule or a four date rule? And he and said, how the how fuck the hell would I, would I know? know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's right. You got dispensation though. Right. Because yeah. time served I knew and you. such. Right. I knew you. Yeah. We had like basically our first date that just kept going. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> so. it, it, was, it was just this, it was just an easy shift because it was like, oh, Obviously, I find you attractive as a human, and I just hadn't realized there was as much chemistry as there mm-hmm. was because it wasn't a thing I thought about. Um, That's so fascinating to me. So we, all it took was Charles saying like, oh, hello, I'm right here. Hello. Yeah. For you to go, ah, oh, oh, yeah. Well, and, and, then- and, you know, I think part of that is the context also of what I was complaining about because at that point I'm 46 years old. And I was finding mm-hmm. out, you know, I I was near my expiration date, if not past it, in gay years because everybody wanted under 30 or under 35. And so mm-hmm. I was encountering a lot of folks who were lying about their age just to hope, you know, they got a few more good years. And it was like, that's sad. Right. So yeah. I just assumed no one younger than me was going to be interested in me because... I, that was just an assumption on my part because mm-hmm. let's also not forget Charles was a choreographer and a dancer and he was fucking young dancers at the time. So I did not think that I was, you know, he's mm. getting them younger, not older. 
so it, I was fascinated by that, I think. Mm-hmm. Are we allowed to say fuck on your podcast or do you edit that mm, out? I don't edit it out, no. So to say it. Okay, good. Say all you I'm want. sorry. I, I, I usually ask. But <laughs> no, but, you know, he was dating young guys, young, young per- people. So it just didn't occur to me that. And you totally like squashed that desire for, well, that plus the last 21 year old that was in the picture. I have a rule now. <laughs> my, my previous. Probably the ex, ex right before me. Right. Was 21 and he was 36. Right. My rule now is the only thing aged 21 that goes in my mouth will be scotch from this point forward because I I just no it's it's not worth it yeah <laughs> you found out you like conversation after right. sex too right. well, I mean yeah, yeah it's mm-hmm. a, and like an actual like what do you mean after sex as well <laughs> like when does conversation happen before sex well, well do you want to have sex? no right, right. <laughs> but but you don't I, I, I'm I'm just guessing here but. You know, it doesn't matter so much that they don't have anything to talk to you about when you want to fuck them. But then once you're done, it's right. like, oh, God, go. Yeah. Because <laughs> what are we yeah. going to talk about? Yeah. What are we going to talk about? But, I mean, that's not so much an age thing. Um, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> age contributes. Yeah, age is an indicator. There's a lot of people who are bad at conversation there. Yeah. And with that, it wasn't so much a, a, a lack of conversation. He was pretty smart. It was a flightiness that goes mm-hmm. with being 21. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I can't fault you for any of it, but I, I'm not sorry that it's not in my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And and by that point, you've sort of had a been there, done that right. kind of an attitude. Right. It's sort of about everyone. You were just like... Yeah, I'm just I'm happy with you. You you came right like we came right on time. I yeah, I think so. Often that's happened. That wasn't meant to be a double on time <laughs> when I said it. <laughs> and yeah. Oh, usually I pick up on double entendres, but I was just sitting here singing the black box song right on time. Right. <laughs> See? <laughs> but yeah, that was that was the perfect time cuz I was coming off of this, well, no, by the time we got together, I was over the breakup and just in this phase of like, what the hell am I doing? You know, and and who is out there for me? Mm. Because, you know, okay, fine. Yeah, I'm a lot. And I have a unique mind space that you know like I, I like people that are smart and well-read but can also be silly and funny and are about something with their lives like it's it seems like what would be a an expected checklist but it's not mm. easy to find all of those things in the same person at the same time it's not you know and the thing that was so unique to me, I mean, I, I I had been with someone for 15 years, my second marriage, and I I'd never thought, I never expected it to end. And it ended with very little drama. It was just like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore, is what I heard. And so we stopped. And then I didn't know what to expect. It was like, okay, I'm 46. I did not expect to be single at this point. I did not expect to be trying to date. And I was just trying to figure all of those things out at one time. 
And so this was really comfortable because I, I, that's what I was complaining about, like meeting people and finding out, you know, everyone's got a list now of what they want. You also saved me from myself. Well. In a multitude of ways, but particularly what I'm talking about is like I was like – what's the word, hopelessly single at that point. Like, it's like, I'm never going to find anyone. The only thing I can find is is sex. So it's like, well, I guess that's all I care about. And the choices, some of the choices I was making were not... Ended in penicillin. <laughs> no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, yes, but that's not what I was going to say. Just, just so we know, we're not here to slut shame. We're here to celebrate. No, not at all. No, <laughs> not no, no. At all. But no, I was making decisions that were not uh, serving you. They thank you. They weren't serving me physically, mm-hmm. mentally, psychologically, and you pulled me out of that whole cloth. And I am grateful for that because, whew, I don't. If I would still be around now, had I remained single, I don't know what kind of person I would be. Okay, I'll take that. So, thank you for that. Yeah, I, the, <laughs> I mean, the the thing that has always been true is that I don't think there's anything we haven't talked about or been honest with one another about. Yeah. You know, so because we both identify as bisexual and we both, you know, have explored our sexuality, we talked about that. Yeah. Not exes, mm-hmm. not, you know who did what with whom, none right, of that. Right. But, you know, the greater level of, yeah, this turns me on too. And so we always had this open place. And then, you know, I've always been around creatives, but it was really mm-hmm. with us getting together that I was back on a stage. You know, I was an actor for a, a, a minute in the late 90s, you know, local theater, a few commercials, a little bit of voiceover. But the relationship became a way to explore creativity as well. So Charles was producing a a performance series. I went and attended and I said, the thing that's missing is a host. And so I started to host it. You know, it was like, it just seemed like a natural extension. And I think made the show better. It Um, did. And it also freed me up because I was always stage managing so I'm running around making sure that the the acts are ready to go and if someone drops out for whatever reason I have to be able to put someone in the right spot so then like that plus I'm I have one ear open for when the audience is applauding the end of the act that's on so I have to run upstairs so I can get on the stage and introduce the next act and then run back to what I would like so that so we fixed all that so much we fixed all that and you know gave everyone an intro and an outro and talked about what they were doing next and so because you know it was such a variety of folks performing it it just made it so much more cohesive and that was when we started first working together and I I hadn't let myself be creative in a very long time, you know, because I was focused on work. I have two children. I was raising my children. You know, my second was just in college at this point. And, you know, so everybody left home. And I was just really exploring what it, what it even means to be me. And, you know, so... You've and, never been to you. Well, I, I, I've had glimpses. But, I mean, you know, I was married... 
again. So here's the trajectory. In the early 80s with my cousin, we were all over the place and I was dating men. It was also the beginning of AIDS. I was terrified. I had a family that wouldn't accept me at all or, or that part of that aspect. And I you know, got hung up in work, wound up married, having children. And that was the trajectory. And I was happy. I loved both of my wives. But a part of me was also miserable and incomplete. So I had always known that I was trans, but it was something that I put a brick wall around. Puberty did that for me. And you know, when I tell my story about being trans and I, we talk about puberty blockers and young people today, I say, you know, in 1978, when puberty violently took the color out of my life, I would have emancipated myself to get puberty blockers if they existed. If there was such a thing that I knew about, I would have you know, gone to hell and back to get them because it was growing tall and growing broad and hair showing up everywhere and my voice deepening and all of those things that made me believe I could never be myself. There was just no place in the world where that was possible now. And that goes back to, there used to be a lot of gatekeeping, uh, you know, for trans women in particular. There was a lot of gatekeeping, a lot of, you know, you, you had to pass as a cis woman. You had to be able to pass, uh, just all of that, for doctors to even help you. So I wasn't so much lying. I, I don't like that word. I, I walled it off. Like, that's just a thing that can't happen. So I've got to figure out how to be happy now and, and with this body. And part of what happened in the course of our relationship, so what was it, five years in or so, was it's like, okay, now we own our own business. Things are going pretty well that way, not money-wise, but otherwise. <laughs> um, you know, we, we had this great spot that we created together. Um, I was in a relationship that I was happy with, and yet I was still not happy. And, mm. you know, it, it never goes away. It never goes away. Whether we're talking about being queer, whether we're talking about being trans, I'm talking about being trans. I thought it would be enough to be in queer spaces, around queer people, be in relationship with a man, be open about the fact that I liked men and women. I thought all that would be enough and, and, and especially doing creative work. Well, it wasn't. And I still, you know, at the end of the day, I had to come clean and be authentic. And there was nothing left to do but that. And, you know, I famously said, we're about to find out just how bisexual you really are. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, Ding. Uh, yeah. So, it, you know, it's been a journey, but it was like, for everyone it wasn't a surprise to, I also knew I might be ending this relationship. Yeah. Yeah, because that's a huge thing, like to accept the fact that of course it is. people might turn their back on you and do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So, so how, was, how was that conversation between you two? I mean, it really went, you um, tearfully said to me, I'm trans, and I believe I said, I know. You did say, I'm going to need a minute. I did. You said this is not what I signed up for, or this is not what I initially signed up for, something like that. Right. And I went, right. And and I'm sorry for making you feel that way in that moment, but it was, yeah, it was a lot to take in, but I've, you know, 
And it was just a moment. Right. But, you know, because I, I am stupidly organized um, with something. So I gave him the list of the friends he was allowed to talk about this with. Because ah. I said, I'm not going to ask you to carry this all on your own. I wasn't out to any of them either. But I'm like, you can out me to them so you can talk to your friends. So you have a support system mm-hmm. around this. Because mm-hmm. I can't be all of that. Um, and I had already said on record like many times in the past, you know, in my argument about how the rules we place on gender are bullshit, I was like, you know, if you found someone that, you know, is your love, is your all, is like your person, and you go to bed one night and then you wake up and they have a completely different, you know, set of genitalia and a different body, does that actually change who the person is to you? All those feelings just suddenly go away? No, that's silly. Of course not. So I said this, so I had to like, you know, walk my own walk and talk, walk my own talk. Walk your yeah, t- that. Yes, yeah. that's right. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, and that's... <laughs> that, yeah. So this really has been, um, I think in that regard, the most mature relationship either of us have ever been in. Right. Um, because it's it has allowed for constant growth between mm-hmm. the two of us. And, you know, one of the things we learned just in the course of our relationship, obviously, over many years, and then having a bar together was we talk about hard things all the time. We You know, we, we talk about very frank things all the time. And so, you know, it was nothing in our bar to be talking about politics and religion and race and gender and orientation because these are facts of life. Right. And, you know, spirited debate sometimes. Uh, but we come from this intersectional place where we check in with one another. So we've, we've veered... Yet Very again, far off. We're good. You said we could. <laughs> We're good. I, for th- I know I said we could, but but every now and then I have to say, "Oh, let's go back." Okay. So, one of the things that I picked up before that you said, Martha, was that this was a venue that you started dragging. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a bit? Um, sure. So, I started on the stage at Bob and Barbara's. I did I, a stint at a at their Halloween show. Um, Charles got me backup dancers. And I, I sang When You're Good to Mama, but I came out dressed as a nun. And then the dancers <laughs> stripped me down. So at the end of it, I was I still had the habit on, but I, I was in a little black cocktail dress and singing When You're Good to Mama. Little black sequined cocktail, cocktail dress. dress. So anyway, that was my first number. And Don't it, forget the sparkles. It was so much fun. And, and then when I said, you know, et cetera, needs a host, Charles is like, we'll host it and drag. And I'm like, that'll work. That'll be fun. And so that's what I did. So I would do a number, you know, to open each set. Um, and I had back, I had backup dancers the whole time, and we did this whole thing. And so, you know, the venture really was it was by invitation, and it was an honor to perform there again because they were they were just so nice and professional. But what? began to happen for me is that I think this is true everywhere, but particularly in Philadelphia, there's a lot of crossover between the drag community and the trans community. Yes. And a lot of the the trans women my age who have been out forever Mm -hmm. uh, still do drag. 
they still perform, you know, because they made a name for themselves and it's, it's decent coin. But I would notice, you know, when we would finish a show, you know, they would mm. go upstairs as the women they were. And I had to put back on boy clothes and that was drag. I realized that was drag, that the performance was the masculinity that I was putting back on. It wasn't the drag. It wasn't, you know, being saucy and being funny and singing up on stage. That was all great. That was me. And so the idea of impersonating a woman, the idea of, you know, this fake femininity, it just didn't sit well anymore. For me, personally, still a lot of drag queens in our life. You know, it's not that I don't go to shows or anything like that. It's just that we stopped doing et cetera because we bought the bar. I hosted one of our, we did this fringe of the fringe thing, which we can talk about or not, but it was a big variety show. And some of the folks that came to our bar to do that were folks who had performed it, et cetera. And they all kind of insisted, mm. like, you've got to do drag once more. You've got you've to host as Ida. Mm -hmm. my, my drag name was Ida Dunham. And if you keep saying it fast, it's clever. Ah. So... <laughs> um, and he just dropped. So I did that that one more time. And then I said, yeah, I, that's the last time I'm doing drag. Ah, interesting. So... Okay, I am going to process this through my own lens, so I might, like, get some things wrong when I recount this to you. So please do call me on it. But so it sounds as though you got into drag and that helped you explore your identity. And then when you not realised, because you already realised, you reconciled that, that you were trans, mm -hmm. that no longer felt appropriate. Correct. For me. Okay. For me because, you know, it became twisted up in that whole idea of, you know, have I been a fraud? Have I been telling people that, you know, I'm someone I'm not? I, it, you know, it got confusing, but it was, it was a moment of such clarity. And, you know, in the very beginning, I tried to tell myself, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a performer and, you know, this is a lot of fun, but this is not who I am. This is just a performance. But again, I kept saying, you know, I envied the girls that went back upstairs and were women and I was not. At least presenting as one. But I realized, but I, we're the same. We're the same. They just have a courage, mm. whatever you want to call it, that I did not have at that point. And... Yeah, so I, I, I needed to step away from it at that point. So it, it, it helped me. I really did explore the art form. I really was a headliner. It was a good time. I'm, I don't regret it at all. You know, and I, I could see myself emceeing and hosting again, but not in drag. As uh, me, happy to do it. But to, uh, you know, perform again in drag for any reason just doesn't feel right. Mm. For me, for me, yeah, for me. Well, because the sense of humor that you used in your performances, that's you, that's not Ida, that's you. Right. Your, you know, your talent, that's you, that's not Ida, that's you. Mm -hmm. So whether, it doesn't matter what you're wearing when you're 
using your gifts, it's you. Right. So there you go. And, and, and for me, I don't want folks to confuse the two. This is not an act. This is, this is me. Um, this has always been me. This is the me that I've always known myself to be. There was a lot of shit to work through in my life. You know, uh, again, the, 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 just the family that raised me and, and religion dipped in there for a while and just all of it. As it is wont to do. Um, and, and once I had children, I was going to raise them. Again, you know, being trans was something I, I locked away. Because I, I had decided at some point it wasn't possible. And then I realized it was the only thing that was possible. Yeah, it was it was transition or die. Mm. By the time, you know, I came out, there was nothing left. Because it doesn't go away. And it's like, am I going to die with this in me? No, I'm not. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to. But that meant, well, then we're going to have to start telling people. Right. Probably. And it really was the catalyst. The big catalyst was the death of my mother um, in 2017. And um, she died the day after Thanksgiving. And, you know, my sister and I were there with her. And my daughter was with me. And, and I sobbed. And I realized they were not tears of grief. They were tears of relief. Because this person who was such an outsized influence on my whole life, was gone. Now, the, the joke I've turned it into is, and then I went home and started going through her closet. <laughs> Got some nice stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but it really was that, okay, you know, because I don't, I had convinced myself, I guess, that there was no possible way for, for us to inhabit this planet together if I were to be authentic, like we would have lost that uh, all relationship. I believe that's true. She knew about Charles. She knew, you know, I was queer, but she didn't know I was trans or at least I had not confirmed it. And I believed that she would cut off ties. And it was at a time in her life when she was very frail and needed help. So it just didn't, I don't know. It didn't feel appropriate. It didn't seem like time yet. And then there was no more time. So do you still believe that then? Do I believe she would have cut ties with me? I'm, I'm pretty sure yeah, she would have, yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure she would have said, yeah, I, I can't get with that. Because, you know, I think her belief was not so much around queer folks, but I never saw acceptance of trans people. And I think in part because, you know, I was that kid. I was that three-year-old, probably two-year-old, who said, but I'm a girl. Like, why do you keep mm -hmm. telling me to be something I'm not? Why are you dressing me like this? It doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to play with the dolls. Mm -hmm. I wanted to play with the girls. I wanted my hair to grow. I wanted, you know, everything that was feminine. And, and, and the way that I played, like, sort of more collaboratively, and I was not rough and tumble ever, all of it. You know, that happened. But at the time, in, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, there was no space in this home for that. There was no space or time to even explore that. And I was told, you know, that's not a possibility. What you say you are isn't even possible. It's not something that's true. So their belief was... 
that trans people were deluded. Their belief was there, there aren't really trans people in the world. They just, you know, they go off and do whatever they want, but that's not yeah. real. And I've stopped saying it was because I would get beaten. I would get punished. I would get, you know, my brother would, was trying to toughen me up and, you know, wrestle me to the floor and torment the hell out of me because, you know, he wanted a little brother and all he got was another little sister and he wasn't happy about it. And no one was. Uh, you know, I think I was an uncomfortable fact. And they really did believe if they just set these rigid guidelines and kept saying no and didn't let me have dolls of my own and didn't let me have those toys and didn't entertain any of it, it would go away. It never did, you know. And again, up until puberty, I could kind of live in my head and believe that one day I'd be free of it. And then, you know, my body grew in, in ways that I hated. But then it felt like it was all too late. So now it was time to be whatever a man is. And so I, you know, went about studying masculinity and trying to understand, you know, how can I, how can I integrate all the parts of myself? Because I'm still, to my thinking, like softer and more gentle and more compassionate and more kind. I still don't want to do all those things. And I still don't know how to fit with men in men's circles and have these manly talks. I fit in better with queer men. Right. But that didn't even always go well. And it turns out, well, they're not attracted to women. And they're battling their own toxic masculinity as well, often. Yeah. Well, and that too. And that too. Just a smidge, just a smidge. Some self-loathing comes into play in certain individuals. Yeah. So, you know, that is how things unfolded. And, you know, I I had an enormous fear that if I would have even come out as queer while I was raising my children, that there would have been a a huge custody battle. It was just, Mm -hmm. I I really didn't think there was any kind of space or grace for me. And they were my priority. And I, you know, that I don't regret making them a priority for all the years that I did. I'm fine with that. They're wonderful humans now, but... (laughs) Wait, wait, they're wonderful humans now. Well, I mean, you know, I I, I invested. I heard that, that too. I, I, well, they were wonderful humans then, but I invested that time in them, and and you know, in their education and in just being at home. You know, I didn't have mm. great examples of parenting at all, so a lot of it was just do the opposite. Mm-hmm. Don't beat on them. Uh, sit down to dinner with them. Make sure they have clean laundry put away in their bureaus. Make sure you read to them. Make sure you're home at night. So all the things that I never had, I put into parenting. And so, you know, it, it was what it was. But, you know, yeah, toward the end there, I might have come out a little bit sooner, except it just didn't feel right. And I was in a business and I had a business partner and I don't think that would have gone well. And there were too many variables. There were so many sort of things about where we were at that point that it it was very much an Mm. internal process. And it has to be, it should be. It should be a private thing until you're ready to live and talk about it, until you're ready for it to be public. And we were public people even then, before the podcast. And so... Just by virtue of being in the performance. Right, in the, in the performing arts and, and owning a bar. And 
So, you know, this was something and COVID came along, Mm -hmm. right? So I was already, you know, my mother was the end of 2017. Then, you know, my best friend Gosha got diagnosed in February of 2018 with lung cancer and died in April. So we had six weeks where, you know, I just about lived at the hospital with her when she was in the hospital. And... Then she was gone and she knew that I was trans. She, you know, we had had that conversation and she loved me and she accepted me. And, you know, at that point I'm, I'm very gender fluid, I think, in, in presentation. Yeah. Um, but not out to anyone but my close circle. And so Gosha was uh, 10 years older than me, 12 years older than me, 14 years older, somewhere in there. And at least 10. It was such a realization that this all ends you know, I never lost anyone who was that close to me on a friend level. I had never gone, I had never experienced that kind of grief, that profound, Yeah, she's not here anymore. Um, just sobbing grief. And that's when I started to say, if not now, when? Right. So as I worked my way toward getting on hormones, as I talked to more of my trans elders and we got closer and closer and they really helped me deal with all of my own internalized transphobia, then COVID, you know, then COVID. And I still wasn't on HRT. I was trying to get on it, but I didn't have health insurance. Uh, But it, it really became a priority. And then, you know, so I was already on that path. Um... But COVID really just brought it more into light. You know, when you've got no one around you, you know, every, everything we loved about the city went away. Yeah, it did. And, you know, in, inside of a week. And we had this house in New Jersey that was sitting empty, my mother's house. And we had been slowly emptying it and trying to sell it. And it fell through twice. And so we we came to just start scraping wallpaper and getting rid of the carpeting and hoping that would help sell it and realized... We actually had outdoor space. We, right. had, we had places to be. It felt good. It felt safe. It was just so quiet. And so that's, you know, that was a major decision that just happened as a result of COVID. Yeah, it was just the right time because, you yeah. know, it was okay if we left the city because we're not, I'm not missing out on, you know, this thriving yeah. cultural scene, this thriving nightlife scene because it's not there and it it became increasingly apparent uh, there was no way our bar would survive right you know because we thought we were going to be closed for a couple of weeks and then it was a couple of months and then it was pretty clear it was going to be damn near a couple of years and we couldn't sustain that financially there was just no way and um Mm. and so so all those things the factors came came together just the right way and it was you know, especially cool for me because, you know, I was a city boy my entire life. And so I had uh, convinced myself that I had no need for peace and quiet because I had just assumed I wasn't going to get it anyway. So what's the point <laughs> wanting it? And once I got this dose of like tranquility and calm, I was just like, this is what my soul has needed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, interestingly, as I said, I was already on this path. I was on this journey, you know, things were happening for me, but, you know, I work with so many trans people who came out during COVID. 
Yeah. You know, it's like once you took all of the outside world away and, and they were by themselves or right. mostly by themselves. All you have is you and you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do, how, I, like I have to reckon with this thing now. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here in, in, in the silence of days and days and days and months and um, if not now, when? If not now, when? Mm. Do you have any memories of the Venture Inn or maybe clubbing from your own queer scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, why not get in touch? I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories of queer clubbing, but I cannot do it alone. Go to lostspacespodcast.com, find the section, share a lost space, and then tell me all about what it is you got up to. And if you just want to have a natter, if you just want to reach out and have a chat, why not get in touch with me through Facebook or Instagram where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Whilst you're online, why not find out more about Charles and Martha by listening to their podcast, Full Circle, available wherever you stream good podcasts, or following them on socials. They're on Instagram, Facebook, and threads as Full Circle The Pod. If you liked this episode, I would really appreciate if you took the time to subscribe, leave a review on your podcast platform, or just tell other people who you think might be interested in giving it a little listen to. My name's Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. <laughs>